Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to this evening's event. I think we all need to take a deep breath. Looks like we're going on a journey. So. Uh, it's a glorious photo. Anyway, I'm, I'm delighted to introduce our, our, our guest this evening, who's come to us from not so far away from Zayed University, um, Zayed University in Abu Dhabi. So, uh, and I'm sure a lot of you in the audience know Eric Staples, but I'm very pleased to give you some details on his bio. Um, He's an interdisciplinary maritime historian whose interests include Indian Ocean shipbuilding, seafaring, and navigation. He received his PhD in Islamic history from the University of California at Santa Barbara uh, in 2008. Um, in addition to his historical pursuits, he has also been actively involved in a variety of maritime archaeology and experimental, experimental archaeology projects. Um, he's participated in underwater surveys and excavations in the Mediterranean, uh, as well as Oman, and has overseen the construction of eight experimental reconstructions of Western Indian Ocean vessels in Oman and India. Um, and he's currently, as I alluded to, or, or said at the beginning, an assistant professor at Zayed University, uh, not so far away from here. Um, I'm really delighted that Eric is here to take part in this series of lectures about, we have a series of lectures, I don't know if you've noticed, about the Emirates heritage and culture. They run through the year, and I'm really delighted. Eric's here today to talk about his work. Um, one thing that he knows a lot about is Ahmed ibn Majid, which is one of the oldest pieces of literature from this part of the world. Ahmed ibn Majid, of course, was known for his contacts with Vasco da Gama, I think. Possibly showed him the way to to the Gulf from, from, from Africa, which presumably meant navigating the currents rather than where the, where the way was. It presumably just said it's over there, but it's, it's actually navigating the currents. And it's something difficult. In any event, um, I just wanted to mention that Eric is, teaches that book, knows it very well, and, and we hope one day we'll produce an edition and translation of it for a, a series that I edit. Um, but without further ado, Please welcome Eric Staples. Hmm. All right. Um, thank you very much uh, for coming tonight. Uh, particularly uh, when I had scheduled this, I had completely forgotten it was on National uh, Holiday uh, Week. Um, so uh, there's lots of other more exciting things to do, Formula One, big concerts, etc. So thanks for coming, uh, taking the time to come down. Uh, I would also like to thank uh, the Institute, in particular uh, Phil, for kindly inviting me. I will take any chance, uh, for those of you that know me, to talk about boats uh, and ships. So uh, I am looking forward to this. Now, as you might have guessed from the title, um, I will be talking about um, seafaring, and specifically boats and ships that sort of enabled the seafaring. Um, and as most of you know, seafaring in this part of the world has a very long history. And it was one of the main ways in which Arabia interacted with the rest 
of the world, in particular the Indian Ocean world, um, and eventually the entire world. Now, although I'm interested, uh, as Phil mentioned, in other aspects, traditional navigation, um, maritime trade, Corsair activities, tonight I would like to focus particularly on boats and ships, the watercraft, the maritime technology that enabled and that sort of allowed the seafaring to take place, um, often referred to as Dow or DAOs, basically, which you are all probably familiar with. Now, the first thing uh, you might notice in the title is that it's actually in quotation marks, uh, DAOs with quotation marks, which, from an academic perspective, are usually the ultimate symbols of doubt, skepticism. Um, and I have to, have to admit that I actually had, for much of my career in graduate studies, a profound discomfort uh, with the term uh, DAO usually is used to refer to uh, any indigenous ship from Arabia, uh, Iran, Persia, East Africa, Pakistan, India, the Western Indian Ocean. But the term actually was first used by the British. Uh, we have earliest records that we know of in 1761. And the British basically you start using this term Tao to referring to all vessels in this type of the world. But what we do know is that there's no exact Arab equivalent. Uh, they translate it as Safina or Markup, ship or vessel, respectively. Dao actually was a specific type. Which type of Dao it was is debated, whether it was an East African type or an Arabian type. But what the British did is they came in, they found a term that was convenient that then was applied toward all vessels in this part of the world, sort of a linguistic homogenization, so to speak. Um, much like Kleenex, for example, can refer to any tissue, but is actually one company. Um, also, with the British actually using the term, it also represents what you would call an imperialist imposition of a term. So in the rather liberal, what you would call uh, envi academic environment of University of California, I had severe reservations with using the term. It sort of seemed to represent everything I was trying to deconstruct. Now, the interesting thing is that for the last eight years, um, I've been very fortunate that I've been living here in Arabia, in Oman, and more recently here in the Emirates. And I've been involved in doing research, documentation, construction, and sailing of vessels that we would refer to as dows. Um, and I have become much more comfortable, uh, actually, with the term, uh, largely for two reasons. First of all, when talking to an intelligent lay audience, such as yourselves, I say dow. Most of you, an image automatically comes to mind. You understand what I'm talking about. If I say Northwest Indian Ocean vessel, uh, first of all, it trips off the tongue. And second of all, most of your eyes glaze over. Or what quite is that? I'm not quite sure. Um, so it's more effective as a means of communication. But second, and what I would think is even more important, originally when I would refer to boats in this part of the world or ships, I would refer to them as their particular type, because there's actually a rich variety of types of what we would consider a Dao. So I would say, oh, that's a Jalbut, or that's a, a Bugla. Um, but what I've noticed in sort of studying these classification schemes and structures that I sort of learned in graduate school, the more and deeper I study them, the more I realize how fluid, uh, how ambiguous, ambiguous, how sort of overlapping and complicated, and sometimes even incorrect they are. So having a term that refers to all these vessels, um, rather than the, those individual classifications, can sometimes be very useful. Um, 
So, but if we are going to use the term DAO, and I think I probably should remove the quotation marks from the title, but if we are to use the term, and I think we should, the one thing that I think we should really be sort of imbued or added to the definition is diversity. Because what we think of when often, or at least when I mention the word DAO to many people, we have a vision of something like this. A wooden ship, cotton sails, romantic sort of static vessel that's been sailing the Indian Ocean for millennia along the monsoonal trade routes. But the interesting thing is that when you look at these individual vessels, they are actually what you would call an organic form of maritime technology that is adapting and changing almost constantly over time. Uh, this image is an excellent example of this. This is what is often referred to as a bakala, a female mule. This photo taken in the 1930s was when it was in its final phases. It was dying out. We have records of it was no longer being used, largely because there was more economical and more efficient boats called boom uh, and other types that were, being, uh, that were being sort of transplanting it. Our first references to it are in the late 18th century. Um, so what we see here is this vessel is actually only around 150 years old. And this, or this type at least. And what we see, we have very limited evidence of it, but the evidence we do suggests that there is sort of a constant process of change of these vessels over time. This is a uh, beautiful drawing of Tubagla in Muscat Harbor by a French naval officer, uh, uh, Admiral Paris. And he basically drew these 1838, published in 1842. From a superficial view, they look somewhat similar to the vessel we saw before in the photo. But if you look closer, actually what is interesting is that, say, for example, the stern, the back of the vessel here, the construction is what's called round tuck for those that build boats, as opposed to a square tuck. Sounds relatively simple difference, but it changes entirely the way you build the vessel. We can also see here, and I apologize, it's a bit grainy, but there's sort of some white lines along the side. These are actually gun ports. Uh, and our first references, and up till around 1840s, 1850s, these were using, being used as war vessels. But however, they transitioned to much more of merchant vessels, particularly as the British get involved, and sort of demilitarize the region on a maritime level. What we also see is that there are regional, what you would call subspecies, subtypes, um, the Omani Ganja and the uh, Indian Kutia. So within a 150-year span, with just a couple of photographs, a couple of historical references, a couple of paintings, we can see there is considerable change going on within one single vessel type. And this diversity is actually applicable all the way back. I'll be looking just at the Islamic period and in the Arabic uh, language record, um, largely. But what we see is that these types, they don't last long. You have a couple of terms, Safina, Markab, which last sort of boat and vessel, general terms, Sambuk as well. But most of these are actually very historically contingent. Therefore, a small period of time, they come and go. Uh, we can see here, this is sort of a, there's been a linguistic study, um, an excellent linguistic study by uh, Dionysius Agius, Classic Ships of Islam, who has looked at all these different types. And you can see in the Arabic uh, literary tradition different terms that sort of pop up in different periods. So there's more than this, but I didn't want to list long names. So I'm just using four from each uh, time period, roughly. Um, but you can see in the 7th, 8th century, particularly in the pre-Islamic and early Islamic poetry, we have terms the Ghassaniyya, the Khaliyya, the Qadis, the Awdaliyya. Um, these terms, however, 
fade very quickly from the literary record. And we see new terms, particularly in that 9th, 10th century, when you have that very rich historical and geographic Arab tradition emerging with Tabari and Masoudi and Qadisi. And we see uh, the Shadda, the Barija, which was used by pirates in the Western Indian Ocean. Uh, the Sumeria and the Zabzab, which were used actually in uh, more in Iraq. In the Middle Islamic period, sort of 11th to 15th century, again, these terms sort of fade from the record. It's not a clear drop, but what we see is the ebb and flow. And we see the Burma, the Jashujiya, the Dunij, uh, and the Aikar. Different terms, different types being used for different purposes. Again, 16th and 18th century, new terms arrive. Uh, some of them, the Ghorab and the Galiata, are from the Mediterranean. And this actually, you see the Ottomans, as the Ottomans and the Portuguese get more involved um, in the Indian Ocean. We see terms being applied previously to the Mediterranean come here as well. We also see the Tronki and the Qatar. So what we see is that over time, different types. We don't know a lot about these individual types, but we can see that they're there and that there's a variety. And then we get to the more modern record, the last two centuries, where we have a much better record. We've actually documented a lot of these vessels. We have more drawings, more photographs. Um, these are some of the ones that are in Oman. But you can see the new, the new types emerge. Um, the Budden, the Batil, a different variety. Now, I put this up just to show you, if you look at them, they vary considerably in terms of size, shape, Features, just about everything about them is different from the other type. There are some similarities, but the primary characteristic is its diversity. Uh, in typology, basically in type and over time as well. The other really interesting thing, I mean, if you're going to sort of, sort of alter the definition of a DAO to include this diversity or include, uh, sort of imbue it with this diversity, there's also a material uh, diversity, which I find very interesting. Um, everything from, you can see here, we have reeds, we have date palm rafts. Uh, these are entirely made from just date palms, the shasha or the wargia. We also have a wide variety of timber species that are used in the boats. Now, if you asked a boat builder, um, one of the older generation that used to build the dows um, back when they were all made of wood rather than fiberglass, say, what type of wood did you use? He would say, ah, sedge, teak. Uh, frames, the internal skeleton, jungly, jungle wood, basically. But what is interesting is that when we dug a little deeper, what we found when we started going into the actual boatyards, we started ID wood IDing the actual timbers that we were finding, either in the ethnographic or the archaeological record, we saw much more diversity. Um, and we started talking to the timber merchants. This is a list of what, all the different types of timber that we have documented used for planking alone. Now, the reason I mention this is because these woods, which I mentioned, many of them are from India, and quite a few of them are from East Africa. And what I find really interesting about the Tao, if you look at it, is that it is what you would call a material reflection, a material symbol of the diverse material networks that it was enabling. It was, in fact, sailing back and forth, connecting India and East Africa. And the very material makeup of these vessels actually reflects that diversity. Um, but in, in the wood, you also actually have as well the sails. We think of those cotton sails, but we have a variety of different cottons that are being used. We also have palm sails. Uh, in East Africa, we have the doom palm. In India, we have the coconut fiber. And in, uh, here, we often have the uh, date palm fiber, sort of depending on what type of material was most available.
So I think I've hit you over the head with the idea of diversity here. Um, but what I find really interesting, and I'm going to talk, this is going to be an underlying theme for the talk, but also would like to talk a bit about what we would call the approaches, the ways of actually trying to better understand um, seafaring, boats, boat building, uh, watercraft in this part of the world. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're looking at the pre-modern or prior to the 19th century, our understanding, our evidence is very limited. Now you have the textual evidence, you have the historical evidence, the references that I mentioned uh, that are actually mentioned in each specific little uh, individual types. Sometimes they tell us, oh, it was used for trade, it was used for war. Sometimes it even says, oh, it was a large ship or it had a cabin on board. But the actual details, how they built a ship, what were the technical actual aspects or features of these vessels, largely are lacking. We do have one account of uh, boat building from the, what you would call the pre-modern period. Uh, I put it here, um, and I think it's worth reading just to sort of get an idea. This is from the Akhbar al-Sin wal-Hind, uh, an excellent translation which has been done by the uh, Institute here in 2014 by uh, Tim McIntosh Smith. And this is an early 10th century, uh, an account of uh, boat building. Let me read it here. So quote, indeed, in Oman, there are shipwrights who travel to these islands where the coconut palms are, bringing with them carpentry tools and other equipment. They fell as much coconut wood as they want. Once it is dry, it is sawn into planks. Next, using coconut fiber, they twist enough cordage to sew together the planks that have been sawn and use them to build the hull of a ship. Then they hew masts from coconut wood, weave sails from its fronds, and use its fiber to twist what they call Kharabat, which are cables in our parlance, end quote. So this is actually a very interesting quote in some ways. It can give us information. First of all, boat builders were mobile. They're a mobile unit here. Uh, they're moving from Oman to where the wood is. Uh, this reference is to islands off India, which we assume to be the Lakshadweep, the Lakadive Islands, or perhaps the Maldive Islands, but what we, where you have a large concentration of coconut palms. What we also can see is that they're building an entire vessel out of one type of wood, a coconut palm. This contradicts the archaeological evidence, but it is suggestive that perhaps they were doing this. Uh, it's not always the best wood to build out of uh, as well. But we do see that also that they're using tools such as the saws. They had saws at this time period, and that's one of their main uh, tools as well that they're using. More interesting, and I'll get into this in more depth in a bit, they were sewing the boats together. So they were actually taking the planks. They weren't nailing them. They weren't doing mortise and tenon. What they were doing was actually taking coconut fiber rope and stitching the planks together. So the entire boat was held together with rope. All right. It also tells you about the sails made of fiber. But if you want to understand more about that vessel, it has a very amount of information. If you want to know what kind of steering they used, or how many masts they had, or um, any more technical data, we don't have that from the textual record. Rather, you have to look at the iconography, um, some drawings that we have from manuscripts from this time period. Uh, this is the, uh, from Maqamat al-Hariri. It's a 13th century manuscript, uh, which you can see here, uh, sort of one of the more famous ones. From this, you can get actually some information. You can see, oh, we can see how it was, uh, what the steering system was, for example. You can see the little lines in between the planks. That represents rope showing that the planks were actually sewn. Um, you can also see there were portholes. They had windows on the vessels. They had two masts. 
Graphenol anchors. A fair amount of information can be gathered from this. The one on the other side is from an astronomical text from the 15th century. Uh, that can also show you, first of all, they were using um, what you would call quarter rudders, basically oars stuck in the, uh, to steer. They had a mast with a square sail. A very, and you can look at the front of the vessel. It has a very similar angle, very blunt as well. Um, so we can get some detailed information from this. But if you wanted to actually go into, into more depth, they are limited. For that, you have to look at the archaeological evidence. Um, and the archaeological evidence is also very limited. We have two what you would call uh, collections of ships' timbers. Um, basically, timbers that were recycled. We could tell that they were built, uh, used to build bo uh, boats previously, and then were recycled to build houses or castles or forts. And we have a collection in Egypt, Sayal Qadim, and then we have a collection in Al-Balid in Oman, southern Oman. They're actually discovering new planks in Al-Balid. Uh, I just talked to someone the other day that's found even more. These planks actually can tell us, you can see here, you see the lines, in some cases, you actually even have a bit of rope in there. We can see that they were, saw, they were sewed together with the rope, like the text referred to. We can see the thickness of the planking, uh, how they were attached. We also have two shipwrecks. Uh, one shipwreck, uh, the Belatung shipwreck, which is a ninth century, which I'll talk a bit uh, more about in a bit, uh, which gives us a fair amount of information. And then a more recent wreck uh, discovered in Thailand, where excavation is still ongoing. Um, that hasn't been published, what they found, but what they have found is interesting and hopefully will further our understanding. It may sound like a lot, two collections of timbers, two shipwrecks, but if you look at the Mediterranean, where you have a much larger corpus, you have close to 100 sites um, that tells us information about medieval seafaring in Europe. And this is a very small amount. So it almost requires, if you want to understand these vessels, and you want to understand the seafaring, um, requires what you would call an interdisciplinary approach but also um, additional different methodologies, I guess. And today, what I would like to talk about um, is basically experimental maritime archaeology, um, with what many people refer to it is, as an interesting way to add information to our current existing knowledge, um, and to test it, to hypothesize, to check it, um, to challenge the evidence, etc. Now, I've had the really good fortune, um, as Phil mentioned, to have been involved with a team of uh, wonderful expert shipwrights and sailmakers and rope workers from India, Oman, Sri Lanka, as well as some archaeologists from Italy and Australia. And for the last eight years, uh, we have been involved in eight what we would call experimental reconstructions, actually trying to build vessels anywhere from 100 years old to 4,000 years old. Uh, we've done two that were what we call Bronze Age uh, reconstructions, um, experimenting with reeds, wood, bitumen, uh, fascinating craft, very challenging. Um, three others have been built before us by members of our team. Uh, of the five, two of them have sank, which gives you an idea of the challenging nature uh, of it. But I won't go into a lot of depth with this one because um, Inshallah, as they say, we're hoping to actually start another reconstruction at Zayed University of a Bronze Age vessel starting next semester. So hopefully for those of you who are interested, you'll become a little more familiar uh, with these types of, of reconstructions. Uh, this gives you an idea. This is our most recent one. It's in the National Museum of Oman. Uh, well, you can see here it's made out of reed bundles um, with matting and then covered with bitumen. That gives you an idea. Very interesting vessels. But what I would like to do 
rather is focus on the three sewn plank reconstructions. Sewn plank, I mean the boats that actually were sewn with fiber, uh, like you see in that description, uh, the accounts of China and India. Um, we've also done three nailed, more modern ones, but I won't focus on those so much. What I'd really like to do is sort of using the time that we have to focus on the sewn boats. Uh, first of all, to sort of look at the ways in which experimental archaeology can help us, and also the dangers of it in some ways, but also the ways to sort of <coughs> emphasize that diversity uh, that I was talking about. If you look at these three, they're very different types of vessels. So the Jewel of Muscat um, is the one I'll be talking about first. It is perhaps our, our best known one. Um, there were two National Geographic documentaries that were made on it, uh, one on the construction and one on the voyage. Um, and this was basically the idea we're here. It was an Omani, Singapore, by initiative government project to build a reconstruction of that ninth century shipwreck that I just mentioned. Um, this is called the Belitung wreck. Um, and you can see here it was found in Belitung Island uh, in Indonesia. Now, the interesting thing is, why is a vessel from here found in Indonesia? Um, but what was immediately apparent, it was salvaged in 1998-2000 by a salvaging company. It was not an archaeological excavation. It was a salvaging operations. But, um, and what they quickly found here, uh-oh, I think I'm losing my battery. Uh, does anyone have a charger by any chance? <laughs> uh, I'll just, oh, okay, if you could, that'd be wonderful. Um, what we see here is the ceramics, the artifacts on this. There's basically over 60,000 artifacts from China on the ninth century. Incredible uh, ceramic collection uh, that we have here. You can see the greenware, the earliest example of blue and white. Uh, the vast majority of them are actually the Changsha ware. Uh, my colleague Tim Power can probably talk and consider more detail about the ceramics here. Very important for understanding Indian Ocean trade at this time period. But they also actually have other artifacts as well. You have gold, this is a gold cup. Um, sort of, uh, I had the great good fortune to actually see it in 2010. They wouldn't let me drink out of it, but uh, it's actually worth 14 million at the time, uh, which is uh, one of the more expensive additions to your cutlery and uh, kitchen additions, a collection. Um, but they also actually had bronze age mirrors, or sort of bronze mirrors, Chinese mirrors that you can see as well. Uh, this is one. This is another. Uh, the cargo is incredibly rich. I could spend the entire night um, just sort of showing you slides of the different cargo. An incredible collection. But what was interesting for me and for those that study ships is that this was actual the first shipwreck that seemed to be from the Western Indian Ocean. The, um, back in 1998, we didn't have the Alvalid timbers. Uh, so this was sort of, this was a sort of, what you would call ground baking in some ways um, for our understanding of how these boats were built. What we see, the, the guy who was uh, basically in charge of the second season of salvaging was a maritime archaeologist. His name was Michael Flecker. He specializes in boats from Southeast Asia. And he very quickly noticed that this is, looks enough like nothing he'd ever seen before. This is not Southeast Asian. This is not Chinese. This is something very different. And what he then went through sort of uh, very quickly noticed that this actually, some of these features, uh, the beams, resemble features that had been documented in Oman, in Musandam Peninsula, just up the road in the 1990s. Um, 
He also identified the wood. At the time, it was ambiguous, but there were since subsequent IDs that confirmed some of the wood was teak from India, and some of the wood was Afzali Africana from India. Now, the prevailing theory was that because they were building using both types of wood, and these were not sort of quick repair pieces of wood, these were fundamental structural elements of the vessel, um, it was most likely built somewhere in between India and East Africa. Now, you can see here, this is the wreck, and a remarkable amount, what you would say, between 30 to 40% of the wreck still exists. And you have this, you have the stem, you have ceiling planks on which the cargo sits, you have frames, you have planking, you have beams, all of these features that are lacking in the text, all those features that are lacking in the drawings, uh, particularly. And what you can see is that you look in, this is actually the keel, the spine of the vessel. Um, and you can see it actually has the holes. Uh, you can see sort of the indentations in there. We can see where the holes are, how big they are. There's a mortise that the stem fits into, exact dimensions. There's a lot of technical information that we can get from it here. What's also interesting is we found fibers over 1,000 years old still um, existing underwater that you can see on both sides of the plank, which I'll get to in a bit is why it's rather unusual. But what we could see is not only that there was, this boat was sewn, but we could see the way, the pattern which it was sewn. It's double vertical lines and an X. Um, this is a modern sort of reconstruction you can see here uh, of it. So the archaeologist, the head of construction, um, Tom Vosmer, who's sort of the founding father of studies on maritime technology in the Western Indian Ocean, and was uh, sort of overseeing the construction, uh, as well as a maritime consultant uh, by the name of Nick Birmingham, who did this design here. They got together, they worked out through all the evidence, and they came up with the design. Thanks a lot there. Um, and what they sort of, they came up with the design, they then made a scaled model. Nick made a scaled model, 1 to 15, sewed it together by hand. They then did some tank testing uh, to make sure, because the idea here was that this vessel, Singapore had bought the treasure in its entire entirety and was planning to showcase it. And the government of Oman very kindly said, we're willing to build a reconstruction of this vessel and give it as a gift to the people of Singapore to showcase next to this rather unique artifact, considering uh, the connections to Oman. Um, so, but the interesting thing about this is they weren't just giving it we had to sail it. We had to build it and then sail it across the Indian Ocean, um, which meant that the design had to be relatively seaworthy. So we had the design. We did water tank testing at Southampton, wind tunnels, just to make sure that the design would work, would actually get across the Indian Ocean. Um, very detailed design. You can see every single plank is measured, et cetera. Uh, when I before we'd actually started construction, I'd rather naively uh, thought that we were good to go. Uh, I had actually I'd read all of the archaeological reports, the articles there. I'd seen the photographs. We had a, we had a very detailed construction plan. We had um, all of the technical data. We even had a scaled model. But one of the interesting things about this is that at each step, we were constantly confronted by all of these things that we had not anticipated. Uh, this is an example here. This is actually the bottom of the keel, that piece underwater that you saw. This is the reconstruction of it here. Now, we knew exactly where the holes were. We knew how big they were. We knew the mortise. We knew the size. We didn't know how to stitch it, um, which didn't really occur to us until we had to stitch it. Um, and our 
rope workers, excellent, incredibly skilled professional rope workers from Kerala. They still sew boats in Kerala. It's a dying tradition, but they still do. And we have these expert rope workers, but they had never actually sewed anything like this. So what they did is actually this fascinating series of discussions ensued between the archaeologists and the rope workers and the shipwrights trying to figure out actually how to put this together. And we built a model, and they did several different methods on how to actually come up with a pattern that is exact, because it's a very complicated jigsaw puzzle. It looks rather simple, but it was uh, much more challenging than you anticipate. Um, and what we see, actually, is that this happened for the entire phase. The first three rows of planking took us over three months. Because this was, as I mentioned, a different way of sewing a boat together than what our workers were used to. Um, it's wadding on the outside. So this is the outside of the vessel. You can see sort of the lines that are running outside the plank here, um, right there, the, sort of the fiber along it. That's wadding. So you have it on the wadding on the outside, and this is on the inside. You can see also the lines along the planking. So you have wadding on both sides, which our Indian workers were not familiar with. Um, so they sort of had to reinvent how to sew it. But the interesting thing is this is actually around seven months into construction. So after that first three months, uh, everyone sort of got into a rhythm and moved up. But sort of constantly sort of engaging. I'm just using that as one example, the stem keel. But almost every different phase was sort of this ongoing exploration. Uh, evaluation of the evidence, re-examination of the evidence um, to a much greater degree than I'd actually uh, anticipated. But um, in the interest of time, we also, we, we, here she is, we finished her. Uh, here she is ready for launch. Um, put her in the water for a different type of what you would call experimentation. Um, and this is where we actually then um, you can see here, this is during sea trials. Um, and then sailing her across the Indian Ocean over a six-month period, uh, 68 days at sea over six, six, uh, six months, roughly a little under six months in 2010, um, which really gave us the opportunity to sort of see she didn't have an engine, was only on sail power alone. We did have oars. We tried to row. It was a bit of a disaster. Um, we didn't move uh, as we'd anticipated. But what we actually got to see was sort of the sort of the strengths and the limits of this type of sewn boat technology. Uh, one of the things that struck me, I was very fortunate, again, because I was a watch leader uh, and head navigator. So I got to be, for, we had two watches on board. 12 hours a day, I was in charge of sailing the vessel, which gave me this wonderful opportunity to actually experiment with how you would actually sail a rig like this in a sewn vessel. Now, everyone, we show those nice dramatic photos of the boat sailing with a full breeze. But the vast majority of the time, our, our average speed was just over two knots, two miles an hour. Um, a brisk walk uh, gives you an idea here. It took a while. All this epitomizes the first leg, where you can see no wind, just sitting there, sometimes for days. It was rather slow going, a large portion of this. The interesting thing is on the other end of the spectrum, we also got to see, uh, we sail, uh, sailed through part of Cyclone Leila um, across the Bay of Bengal. And we got to see the other end of the, of the spectrum. You can see here, this is sort of putting her through 50-knot winds, four to five-meter seas. She wasn't much stronger than you would anticipate. You read Marco Polo, and he says these sewn boats are terrible, miserable affairs. This was much stronger than I had anticipated. Uh, she did very well. But at the same time, there were limits to this. This boat had 37,430-something holes in it. Um, and these holes were stretched in the middle of this. So we were also measuring. Uh, how much water we were pumping out every day, over seven tons of water 
uh, at the height of the uh, uh, cyclone, basically, which realized, and if you, again, if you think of that iconography uh, with the portholes, the two guys in the bottom are bailing. Uh, there's a reason for that. It's a sewn boat. This is sort of a common theme. We also got to sort of anticipate or experience firsthand some of the challenges, uh, the limits of this type of technology um, in terms of we cracked the mast um, sailing from India to Sri Lanka uh, in a rather bad squall. And we had to sort of do the splint, we call it a fish, uh, and then sort of limp into Sri Lanka on a very small storm sail as well. And at the time, I didn't really think twice about it. But now going through the literature, uh, the maritime literature of the Indian Ocean, I'm just constantly encountering broken masts, uh, which I can sympathize and relate to, but also thinking in the ways in which this actually affects trade routes and the ways in which you go towards places where you can actually get masts. It took us a month to actually find new masts for the vessel in Sri Lanka. Um, so this is a way in which if you break a mast in a timberless region, you are in, um, have serious problems, or you're rowing very slowly, um, as we'd anticipated. The, the voyage also gave us this unique opportunity to experiment with what you would call the pre-modern navigation of the 15th and 16th centuries that we have a literary record of. This wasn't ninth century navigation. We don't have a rich enough literary record of that. But we could do with the 15th and 16th century navigation. Uh, we took copies of uh, Ahmed Majid's Kitab al-Fawad. We took uh, Umdat al-Mahriya's uh, by Suleiman al-Mahri. And I have to admit, we were, no, full disclosure, the, the navigation was GPS. Uh, I was a navigator. Um, we did not have a master navigator, which requires usually 20 to 30 years experience to sail across the Indian Ocean. Um, and the idea is I was head navigator. I didn't want to kill anyone or all of our crew. But also the idea was what it did give us was a platform for experimenting. Uh, this was actual modern navigation, but experimenting with traditional. And we would actually take, this is uh, star altitude measurements, measuring the stars for um, different stars. And it was very interesting, because these texts, I don't know if any of you have looked at them, they're rather opaque. I had struggled with them beforehand. But it was interesting, actually, at sea, these texts sort of came alive in a way that they never had before or even since. Um, in some ways, the sort of when you're actually trying to apply the, the actual navigation practices, the stars, you could all of a sudden make the connections in much more detail. Um, the 73 different star combinations that are available. I thought that that was Ahmed Majid showing off. But what we realized is that when we were sailing across the Bay of Bengal, we could only use three of those star combinations because of our latitude, because of the time of year, because of visibility, which gave you an idea, an explanation. He wasn't showing off. What he was doing was giving a navigator the appropriate set of tools to deal with very diverse situations. Now, experimental maritime archaeology has um, periodically received a fair amount of criticism, skepticism uh, from the academic community. And I would argue justifiably so. Um, often, uh, what you can see is a series of um, people build a boat, they sail somewhere, they write an adventure book out of it, uh, make a film, and very little is actually left. Um, you have the popular account in the book, but very little is actually of substantive data is actually left for future generations of scholars interested in this to evaluate, to critique, um, to have a better understanding of. So one of the things that I think is very important for these types of projects, first of all, authenticity of materials. Whenever you compromise materials, you start compromising the integrity of the reconstruction. Second, even more important, is the level of documentation. 
in order for these to be of any use to our understanding of what we would call sort of pre-modern seafaring and boat building, documentation needs to be what you would call scientifically and rigorously applied. Um, and with this project, we had a good opportunity to sort of try and develop these. We had daily reports, monthly reports, daily photos up to 300 to 500 photos a day, time-lapse camera shoots, video, a lot of video. Um, we also had, as you can see, every single component had a measurement report measuring it um, so that we could do a, sort of a detailed replica of it as well. We also had 3D scan of the entire vessel before she was put in the water and then after she was put in the water out of Singapore so that we can compare the changes that happened throughout the voyage as well. Um, but one of the really interesting things, I was, uh, very lucky and unlucky that I was a documentation manager. Um, I was in charge for the construction of documenting this vessel. And one of the big things, the big questions was how do you document a sewn boat? This is actually, and at the time I was thinking this is the last opportunity to probably document a sewn boat in a, what you would call continuously from beginning to end. It's a dying tradition. So, and I had a rather ambitious, some might argue uh, uh, stupid, idea of recording every single stitch on the vessel, 37,000 holes. Most of the time, the rope goes through four times. You get the idea, a lot of stitches. But the idea is that it could give us some very interesting data about actually how people sewed, et cetera. So what we came up with is the idea of a stitching history. Every component that was stitched or lashed had one of these. Now this, lines and dots, doesn't mean much. But what we do is that this is a plank stitching history. This represents a plank. So what you can see is the line is the seam between the two planks. The holes are what you actually stitch in. Every single hole is given a number. Every plank is also given a number. Sounds fancy, P16-3. It just means 16th from the bottom, third back on the port side. Um, but what we can see is then we would then record. So you can see the first thing, the P16-3, P16-4, two planks together. Their butt joint is partially sewn. AV and AS, that's Abdul Wahab and Abdul Salam, the two guys that actually stitched the vessel. We can see they did it on May 16th, and they started at 1 p.m. and finished at 2.20. They then completed it the next day at 6 to 6.50, uh, and then moved on. And then each day you scan, you also can draw it in, so you can see this is the stitching on uh, the first couple of days, and then you can see the drawings of the drawings from the stitching. And then you have it at the end, basically. So you have a complete record of these stitches, which then can be put into the daily reports, which you can see actually each component has its own stitching history, also a record of what's done in terms of carpentry, which then can be put with the actual technical drawing of each component. So you have a record of every single stitch from beginning to end for this boat, um, which then gives you a fair amount of data of understanding how long it took, where are the difficult parts, um, how long it took expert uh, rope workers versus uh, apprentice rope workers, et cetera. This was largely because at the time I thought we were never going to get another opportunity. Fortunately, however, we did. Um, the Museum of History of Islamic Science in 2012 um, came and said they're doing a maritime science section in their museum and they said, would you build us a 12 meter reconstruction of this manuscript drawing? Uh, quite a challenge. Uh, first of all, this is not a technical drawing in any way, shape, or form. Uh, this is not an archaeological record that has the technical details uh, whatsoever. 
But it was, at the same time, a unique challenge, a particularly difficult challenge. Uh, it's almost, some have referred to it as a cartoon in some ways. How do you actually reconstruct? And the idea originally was to sail this vessel from Basra down to Muscat. So again, this boat had to function when we were doing the design um, and construction uh, in sea. Subsequently, uh, due to scheduling and budget issues, we didn't sail it. But at the time we were doing this, we thought it actually had to sail. Um, and you can see her here. This is one of uh, in our boatyard. Uh, this is another view of her as well. But the interesting thing, I'll get to how you actually try and formulate something out of a two-dimensional, non-technical drawing in a second. But what it did give us was because it was a different way of sewing a boat together. You can see on the outside, it doesn't have that fiber. This is single wadding. You can see here um, just vertical lines like the drawing has itself. However, on the inside, and you can see it sewing, it does have the fiber. We call this single wadding. This is a different way of sewing a boat together, and one which our rope workers from Kerala were much more familiar with. The interesting thing is that this then gave us this invaluable source of data, because we did the same level of documentation that we did for the Jewel of Muscat. So we could then compare and look what were the differences of sewing a double wadding versus a single wadding. Um, and we could get down to details of particularly the same teams sewing on the, uh, one boat versus the other. We could also do comparisons of same team over the time of year, different features in the bow versus the stern versus amidships. This gave us a wealth of data that we could compare, and currently sort of still working through all of this. But this has sort of profoundly shown us that, first of all, it's quicker. We know that. But it has anywhere from 50 to 73% quicker, depending on where you are and who is sewing it. Uh, but this also gives us some data that we can then use to explain why there's a transition from a double wadding to perhaps a single wadding uh, explanation. But the big, what I think the interesting thing of trying to put this puzzle together was basically looking at this and saying, how do you actually formulate what is a two-dimensional, non-technical, non-scaled drawing into something that actually functions? Um, and what we came up with is because what we realized in doing these projects is that Every time you make a decision on a particular feature, it can often have unintended consequences later on. Um, and so what we try to do is come up with a methodology where you are providing a sort of a rationale for each decision, each individual feature. And what we did is we said, OK, what evidence are we relying on for this very hypothetical, floating hypothesis, let's call it, rather than a reconstruction? And we said, OK, let's list it in terms of priority. So the first priority, basically, obviously, is that drawing from the Makamat Hariri. We have a second one as well, which is second. And then we have the Albali timbers, which I mentioned. And then you have the Belatung shipwreck. Uh, and it goes down the list. Now, I'll just show you very briefly what you can see here. This is a drawing. Since we are trying to replicate, or this as faithfully as possible, if there is a feature in this drawing that we can actually replicate, we are duty bound to do so, unless it would sink the vessel. Um, so things such as, for example, the steering systems, the portholes, the carving, the masts, all of this, uh, the rather unusual bowsprit, all of this, we have to, the cabin, we had to actually reconstruct. And we use this as sort of an approximate model for it. But the interesting thing, say, for example, the steering system. You can see there's a rudder that plank sticking off the back, which is a median rudder. Um, one of the earliest examples, actually, of it that we do have. Very interesting. But it doesn't show how you actually move it. How, where's the tiller on this? How do you actually control it? Um, so for that, 
It's not on the first uh, set of evidence. We look to the second. This is the other drawing from the Maqamat al-Hariri. And what you can see back here is that there are some, basically, the tiller sticking aft, which we have representative. Actually, we have, we see the record of this in boats in, in Musandam, as well as in uh, the Batina as well. So we go, OK, we will base the tiller on this, for example. But however, if you're looking for, say, for example, the size of the stitching, we don't have that thickness of the planking. These don't give you. So we look at the Al-Balid timbers, because those are roughly 11th to 15th century. They're closest to the 13th century manuscript in terms of time, location. This can give us information on that. But the keel, that spine at the bottom, these drawings are both of the vessels in the water, so you can't see the keel. Al-Balid doesn't have a keel. So you go to the Belatung wreck. Ninth century, problematic but it's the only representative that we do have of the keel. So the idea is to try and explain sort of how each individual component of the ship is formulated. Now, you can vary from this, but the idea is that if you do formulate, vary from this, you have to explain it in a daily report, explaining why you vary from this, so that it's transparent, that it's clear to future generations that are interested in this. Um, now, uh, very quickly, also the button side. Again, the quotation marks, these are not skepticism and doubt. This is just uh, how it was actually uh, the word that was described, used to describe this particular vessel, the button side, which is a sewn button. Now, this is the third reconstruction, sewn boat, that we've done. Very different um, from the previous two. The first one, we would call perhaps an archaeological reconstruction. The second one, an iconographic reconstruction, slash floating hypothesis, perhaps. This one, we were asked by the National Museum uh, in Oman for the Maritime History Gallery to build a replica of this. And this is a 19th century construction plan drawn by the uh, French naval officer, Admiral Paris, of a simple, what you can see here, um, somebody else did this as well, you can see a simple fishing boat um, that he saw in Muscat Harbor uh, in 1838. Now, the interesting thing about this is that this is a, what you would call an iconographic replica. This is a replica as opposed to a reconstruction because we have the actual exact two-scale technical construction drawing. It, compared to what we had done, we thought this would be relatively simple. Um, again, rather naively, perhaps. It only is five planks that are sewn together, and it has no frames. You can see here being put we had to sort of put these temporary beams to try and push her apart. These were by far the most difficult five planks that we ever shaped um, because we did not have an internal skeleton to go by. Finding planks this large is very difficult, made out of teak uh, these days. That was in itself a challenge. Getting it to match as a boat builder, you would actually just sew them together and use it as a boat, however the planks are shaped. But because we were doing a, what you would call a replica, we had to get the shape of the actual vessel correct, which involved a fair amount of fire bending and all the rest of it as well. And what was interesting was that it sort of, you can see here the stitching. Uh, again, a sewn boat, but a different method. Uh, the stem is also a very different method of stitching from the other two types of vessels we can see. Um, but it also gave us an opportunity. We could see from the construction plan uh, certain details, but the naval officer didn't slice the ship in half or slice the boat in half, but he was sort of assuming certain uh, ways in which it was constructed. So actually forcing us to construct it sort of gave us 
we could go down and give a much more, more accurate interpretation of what it might theoretically look like and how we ended up doing it, sort of after doing several, several different models and samples. Um, and you can see here, here she's in the, the history gallery and in the um, Maritime History Gallery in the National Museum, uh, which is where she is today. Now, the reason I mention these three types, um, back to the idea of Tao, you would call all three of these a Tao. You would call them a sewn Tao, perhaps, um, if you wanted to be slightly technical. But each one of these is very different from the other. You see a ninth century double wadding, long distance trading vessel built out of African and Indian wood, um, very large and seagoing. You have a 13th century uh, teak, smaller, regional, highly decorated vessel. Then you have a very simple five planks, no frame uh, fishing vessel. All of which shows, I think, obviously, the infinite diversity that we have over time and type as well. Hopefully, it's also suggested, I think, the ways in which experimental maritime archaeology can add to it has to be very big dangers of misinterpreting, uh, or particularly if they are used, if you rely on that evidence primarily, it always has to be firmly rooted in the historical and the archaeological evidence. And whenever it's not, you have to justify and explain why it isn't. Um, but it does give us what you would call additional data. For example, the, the stitching data that we previously didn't have. And it also forces you to confront the evidence. I thought I'd understood the archaeological evidence until we'd actually gone through and tried to build this vessel. And it come to a much deeper um, understanding of it, basically. So that's it. I think I've gone over my time. But um, thank you very much for coming. Um, and I also want to say a very quick thank you to my team. Uh, I'm the, the uh, spokesperson, but this is a very large team that was all involved in this entire uh, enterprise, as well as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Oman and Ministry of Heritage and Culture in Oman as well. Um, this was a very large collaborative effort. Um, and I'm just the lucky person that gets to tell you about it. So uh, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Mm. Uh, if you, any of you have questions, feel free, please. Uh, yes. Uh, there's been, well, first of all, thank you very much for this uh, lecture. Very. Uh, um, revealing uh, a lot of facts I wasn't aware of before. Um, there's been um, much uh, talk about discussion about the possibility of, uh, of communication between um, this part of the world, the Middle East and South America. Uh, there, you know, the, the fam famous or infamous cocaine mummies of Egypt, mm -hmm. sand is uh, one, one sort of evidence of this. What, do, what is your thoughts about this? Was it possible that there was such a maritime communication between uh, South America and Africa? <clears throat> or at the Middle East, I should say. Um, first of all, I'm not an expert in that particular uh, part of, I, I feel not very qualified to talk on it. Um, I do think that it has yet to be proven. That's definitely for sure. Uh, the evidence that there is speculative, uh, somewhat problematic. Uh, I would never, what I have encountered, what I have learned is that they're uh, never to underestimate uh, the ingenuity or the abilities of early seafarers um, in general. I've constantly, presently surprised or impressed by the ingenious ways in which people have sailed, often much earlier than we think. But um, in terms of the evidence, I don't think you can concretely say that at, at this point, that there was definitely connections. That would be my 
my non-specialist view on it, though. Yes. Yes, any other questions? Uh, Robert, yes. Um, first of all, thank you for the PowerPoint. Yeah, well, <laughs> thank, you, thank you, Eric, for, uh, for the, the presentation. I, I, I guess I have two questions. Yeah. Uh, one question about the archaeological evidence. Yeah, um, yeah. Is there, you know, I was wondering whether there is little archaeological evidence. Is it maybe something to do with our survey methods? Because doing our surveys, we often hit on iron, and these ships are, most of them, don't have any iron traces. Are there any ideas about how we could improve our surveys to find more archaeological evidence? Mm. Mm. Um, excellent question, excellent question. Uh, particularly because there is, has been a fair amount of survey work, particularly in Oman in the last couple of years. And there's been some great discoveries of the Portuguese wrecks, for example, in the Hellenia Islands. Um, but a lot of, obviously, the magnetometers, uh, scans we did in Kalhat, we did Saisans, Skonar, Sonar. Uh, and proton magnetometer surveys um, and sub-bottom profile of, of the entire um, sea bottom floor and didn't find anything other than old refrigerators and engine blocks, um, which was very discouraging because we had historical records of it. Um, I think, uh, the, the, the strangely enough, the, the most interesting one, the Phanom Surum wreck in Thailand, uh, has actually been found on land. And some, as you know, some of the more interesting wrecks are often found on land, I think. Uh, I, I think perhaps sub-bottom profiling uh, are showing interesting ways in which, and I, I'm no geophysicist by any means, but I have a couple of friends that are that suggest that perhaps um, using different types of uh, sub-bottom profilers might perhaps enhance our ability to find these wrecks because they are very difficult. There's no metal signatures unless you have large cargoes. I think that's sort of the best mm. way to find them. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it, it's difficult, but excellent question. Yeah. Second one. Well, you know, I hope <laughs> I hope that we can improve on that level yeah. because this is such a rich area to to see if we can uh, advance our knowledge also through archaeology. Definitely. Second question is: uh, I was involved in an, in uh, you call you call it the float or hypothesis, but uh, I think the reconstruction of a reconstruction mm. is often what uh, what happens with this kind of projects. You worked for archaeological evidence first, rec, then. Uh, an image and then a two-dimensional technical drawing. I was involved as, an, as a young student in a shipwright who was so convinced that based on the evidence he had, he could reconstruct the ship. And I could, during that process, I could see the skeptical attitude of the scientific world. But on a certain point, you could see that his knowledge as a shipwright in the 20th century looking back at the 70th century, that he was adding so much more information to our understanding of the, the uh, historical and archaeological evidence. And maybe I was running to the, to the office for the core, but how do you cover that kind of information working with shipwrights, uh, coming up with insights, maybe quarreling about the, the right methods? How, how did you uh, factor that kind of evidence in? Excellent question. Um, I think in a... I think well, the, the wrong way to approach this is that the archaeologists or the experts and the shipwrights um, have to do what you say. I think the shipwrights, uh, particularly our head shipwright, Babu Sankaran, was the best shipwright I have ever met. Uh, it was incredible what he could do with wood, um, entirely with hand tools, uh, as well as our rope workers. And 
whenever Babu suggested anything, and this is what I, well, the most enjoyable aspects, actually, these constant sets of conversations that you're having with people that are intimately more well-versed on how to shape a vessel and the sewing vessel than I will ever be um, as involved as I have been in these projects. And so actually, it becomes almost, in a sense, an ethnographic project. But their opinions have to be respected. At the same time, the, it was, in the beginning, very interesting to try and to explain what the project was trying to achieve. Because they say, no, 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 it's better this way. And we go, we know it's better this way. But the archaeologist says, evidence says we have to do it this way. And they're like, no, no, but that's not good. And you're like, we know it's not good. But at the same time, we, we are honor-bound to do it this way. But um, it, I would say each one of these, and that's what I loved about the Harari boat, which in some ways seems a lot less scientific. But the, one of the interesting things about coming up with a very detailed what you would call lines plan and construction plan with this, is that you then become constrained by it. And the shipwright, you are constantly trying to fit it into this sort of very modern three-dimensional plan that's created by a computer. And what we did with the, three, with the actual Hariri boat was I sat down with our head shipwright, and we made a model together. And it was sort of a rough model. And then we barely used that model for his construction. He had an idea of how it was supposed to be. He under how to actually shape the timbers. And he was able to sort of, which I thought in a way was a more organic and authentic way of reconstructing how this vessel was actually built 13th century, um, rather than imposing what you would call a scientific methodology of construction. Um, and I go back and forth on this, because this is a challenge. There's no perfect answers of that, because there still has to be some regulation. But that's sort of one of that constant dance that we're trying to do. But I think the shipwright is an integral part of it. Uh, and it's one of, he was sort of, I think, one of the unsung artists of our, of our project, uh, Babu, because he, he touched every single piece of that boat he helped shape. It was incredible. We had a team of 40, and yet he was on, part of, on every single moment. And um, we were always communicating in Pidgin Arabic, Malayalam. It was just a fascinating melange of, of languages uh, that we were communicating. So that one in itself, the linguistic challenges of the project were also uh, very interesting. You know, uh, First time I actually heard him speaking English was the translation of, uh, of the documentary. I'm like, oh my gosh, Babu's speaking English, you know, uh, which was interesting. But it's sort of the dimensions, the conversations, the dialogue, the back and forth, I think is the most, one of the most enjoyable and interesting and important parts of these projects. Thank you very much for the question. Any other questions? Yes. With the first construction, you were, um, uh, I'm just interested, you've touched on it already, but the, uh, the symmetry that you achieved with the construction, because there was no external framing, and the internal framing was quite rudimentary, so I think your shipwright must have had a very good eye. But I'm uh, just interested in on how symmetrical the boat ended up. <laughs> yes. Um, one of our favorite quotes is, symmetry is a modern notion. Um, and if you measure any of these boats, they are never symmetrical in any way, shape, or form. Um, but what you do see is that um, it was relatively symmetrical, again, relatively, um, as a wooden boat could be, uh, largely because we were trying to replicate the design that so much effort and time uh, and testing had been involved with that design. But the shell first, because for a sewn boat, you have to build the shell first, and then put in the ribs. It's the opposite of how you would build a frame first, a vessel in Europe, for example, on a more modern process. So it requires a different method. The frames usually provide the shape on a nailed vessel. 
Um, here, they actually do a hybrid way of doing that. But what we did is we would have external frames um, to partially shape it. And then we would have templates, um, plywood templates, that we would insert to check that the hole was, uh, was the correct size. So again, that was that, that sort of using modern technology to, to try and check the design that wasn't perhaps an accurate representation of third or ninth century boat building practices. But that was the primary goal was to replicate the design more than to replicate the process of building. Um, which is what we sort of, with the hurry boat, we try to try to emphasize the, the process rather a little more. Um, but uh, excellent question. Hope I answered it. Thanks yes. very much. Ah, uh, Tim. Lovely. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the, the Thai uh, shipwreck. Um, ah, yes. Seeing I as you, I you, you teased us with it a few times. Yes. Um, it, is a, it is a wreck uh, that has been found uh, in mud, basically, uh, recently. Uh, and there is a Thai archaeological team that's excavating. And it, I haven't been to it. Um, Tom Bosmer um, has actually been involved. Uh, and there's the IKUA, the International Underwater Archaeology Conference that's happening in Perth right now. I know there's a presentation uh, from some of the team members on it. Uh, and a couple of years ago, we organized a conference where they presented. But what we do see of it is that it looks remarkably similar to the Bellaton, um, but larger, larger, uh, significantly larger. And you're seeing Kielsen's, uh, the estimates of the length are still up uh, in comparison, but it's particularly challenging because as soon as you remove the mud, then the fibers and all the rest of it deteriorate. So it's a particularly challenging site to excavate. And they are doing it, I think, diligently, and they're taking their time, which I think is the correct way to go about it. Um, but it's, it's tantalizing, because you see these bits, and you go, ah, ah, tear it all apart and look at it, you know? But, but you don't want to, because it is our best preservation. And unlike the Bellaton, which was a salvaging operation that was done in a limited amount of time, Macro Flecker did the best he could, but it wasn't an archaeological expedition over several years. Um, uh, this actually gives us the opportunity to get it right. Um, but it does, it seems to be even earlier, 8th century, actually, which is also very interesting, um, and larger, also completely sewn. And so uh, I'm sort of frothing at the mouth myself to, to actually go and see it and learn more about it. But, uh, but what I do see is, is very interesting and very, matches very well with the Bellatone. Let's put it that way. Yes. Ah, Frank. I don't know everyone in the audience. Yes. <laughs> now, you mentioned how the materials from which these ships were built were a reflection of the trading networks that they yes. traveled around. Um, what about the technology, I mean the technical knowledge? Because on the one hand, you, you seem to say there are like different regional traditions, like the, the Jewel of Muscat, the, the, the ship we covered off the coast of Sumatra, was immediately identified as not Southeast Asian. But then on the other hand, you also mentioned that some of the Boat builders were actually from South India and Sri Lanka. So yes. what kind of cost fertilization was there, or were these very distinct regional uh, boat building traditions? Great question, great question, Rick. Um, this is the evidence. We have such limited evidence from that time period. Um, we do see different traditions. It's Southeast Asia, it's a lashed lug. Appears to be very different. Um, the timbers. Uh, the type of wood that's uh, used appears to be different. We have 18th century references to timbers being come from Southeast Asia to the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and I don't doubt that it was, but the, one of the, I guess what you would call the unnoticed challenges of boat building is getting materials. Even today, it is the biggest challenge that we faced. And I can only imagine the difficulties of actually hand sawing this, putting it on the ships, 
sailing it across the Indian Ocean only to unload it. I can understand why the Omani shipwrights mentioned went to uh, the Lakshadweep Islands. It's easier. Um, the cross-fertilization, you see tantalizing suggestions that there was um, some exchange. And what you often see is, say, for example, the fiber, some of the fiber that's been identified, hasn't been concretely identified, but it seems to be hibiscus fiber, part of the sewing, which suggests that it was being re-sewn or partially re-sewn or repaired um, in Southeast Asia. We do also know that um, it, there is, say, for example, that steering techniques with the median rudder um, suggested in the quarter rudders, some questions on the connection with China, um, and that is very much debated. But what we do see are there, it's hard to talk about it as a tradition. Um, we do because we have such limited evidence. But whenever you look in more depth at any broad corpus of evidence of maritime technologies, there's always overlapping. There's always exchanges. There's always material complexities. Um, and I don't think that would be any exception in the ninth century, um, considering the distances they were following. Um, but, uh, but the typical answer is we don't have enough evidence to concretely say so. But uh, thanks for the question. That's a good one. Yes? OK. Does one have to, does one, uh, when did the cloth sails come in? Or does one I imagine that uh, the earlier ships mostly had um, f other fiber? Um, you do have evidence of cloth ships, uh, sails actually being used relatively in the ninth century, but you also have fiber as well. So you have both types. Um, and I think one of the big challenges of looking at this type of, we often think, they only used one type of material, um, or they only did it one way, or there was only one design. Um, when what you see is there is a variety, um, but cotton obviously was more expensive uh, than making sails. Unfortunately, we had a doom palm sail, but we didn't get to experiment it as much as I would have liked. Um, well, the interesting thing is that we put it up in a strong wind and it started tearing apart, uh, so we quickly put it down. But the other interesting thing is it started to deteriorate, and we were trying to figure out how to actually preserve it once the salt water hit. Uh, it didn't last very long. Um, so there are problems in a way that a cotton sail would last much longer. So if you could afford a cotton sail, and they were making cotton at the time, they would definitely probably have used one. But you have a variety of different materials that are used uh, depending on what was available and how they could afford. I think it's probably the best evidence. But I'm trying to, I'll think, I'll look for the earliest example of a cloth sale. I'm trying to think back on what the earliest is. That's a good question, but I'll get back to you on that. Yes. Well, here's, here's a question from someone that knows nothing about this stuff. Uh, but following up on the gentleman ahead of me here, I'm just wondering, uh, is, is there evidence for this technological transfer or uh, correspondence uh, further afield. For, for example, last week I re read this article in New York Times about the, the old boats they're finding at the bottom of the Black Sea. Yes. Uh, is there any, I, I'm not sure if these go back that far, but, uh, but you know, is there any uh, evidence that uh, boats in, in, in Europe, uh, in, in the Mediterranean, Black Sea area were, were somehow uh, uh, aware or vice versa of what was going on in the, in the Indian Ocean? Well, definitely uh, they were aware, I think. Um, and there, you know, you obviously have the Greeks and Romans sailing in the Indian Ocean and in the Red Sea. Um, and you have, I think, one of, the, one of the more interesting questions would perhaps be why there isn't more technological exchange. Um, uh, this is the big, you see two relatively distinct boat building traditions, where you have mortise and tenon nailed craft in the Mediterranean, um, and you see sewn boats. 
And there is a remarkably, and then you have an Islamic civilization that connects the Mediterranean and Indian Ocean worlds in meaningful ways for centuries. And yet, you see very little of that technological overlap that you would expect. The, the sewn boat tradition, which people automatically assume is technologically inferior because we don't use it today, has remarkable resilience in this part of the world. And um, how it transitioned is still not fully understood, but we can see that particularly once you put large cannon on board sewn vessels, uh, they aren't able to withstand. It's a bit difficult. It's also more labor intensive um, as well. But it seems to be an equally valid boat building tradition until, I would say, 16th, 17th uh, centuries. Um, they were aware of it. That, that's definitely the case. And there was some exchange. And I think the Red Sea is actually a very interesting uh, body of water of looking at that over sort of the overlap of technologies, um, in particular the Egyptian papyri records, which have accounts of different types of technology, of materials going to boat building yards on the Mediterranean coast or in Fustat, as opposed to actually in the Red Sea, which I find very interesting. Um, so there is some overlap, but not nearly as much as you would expect, which I think sort of problematizes civilizational conceptions of technology. Sort of, you often see these books, Islamic Civilization, uh, or Islamic Technology, let's put it that way, uh, History of Islamic Technology. When you look at particular, say, material, uh, maritime technologies don't fit neatly into those categories. Um, but a very good question. I hope I answered that. Yes? Okay. I often see that uh, when the Europeans came to Asia, um, you could see that they would experiment also because of maintenance with other technology mm -hmm. and other, uh, and especially for the rigging, because you, as you mentioned, if you lose your mast, you have to replace it with another material. And I, I know some examples from, tai, uh, from uh, Taiwan in which they try to uh, uh, sail with yonks. But they put European rigging on it because the sailors were used to sail those those ships. So there were all kind of complications also in the habit of using your ships and the rigging and uh, and the introduction of technology was also often uh, hampered by the interest from European uh, shipwrights not to get too much um, um, uh, taken over by the the Asian examples. That is for the 17th century that I found in my research. So the, the exchange of technology is not just taking the right, uh, the best example of the waters you're sailing in, but also other interests like capital interest and, and sailors that you use on the ships. Excellent point. Uh, and you you also see that in the 16th century with the Portuguese ships, and you have Portuguese. They're called you know one was called Santa Maria do Monte, and yet it was actually an Indian vessel that they'd appropriated from. Uh, uh, the ruler of Goa in 1510. So they, from the very beginning, they're sort of using whatever is available to them. Um, and sort of we have this myth of European technology coming into the Indian Ocean and then transforming it. But broadly speaking, there are elements of that, but it is much more complicated. And it actually goes both ways. And it's not necessarily linear in terms of its progression. I think that's also important. And we still have actually these wonderful vessels that are nailed and sewn still in Wasundam uh, today and on the Batina, which still combine these different methodologies for methods of building. I see uh, Phil looking at his watch, so I think, we're, I think we're done. One more question, if anyone has. No, it's time to eat, I think. I think it's time to eat. <laughs> yes, that was a concern. Uh, that was a concern. Um, yes. No, I mean, facetious, but I mean, I'm I was wondering whether Homer's would, you'd expect Homer's might be a sort of a graveyard of, if you think back to what it was in the 16th century, this sort of entrepôt of, of, of merchant vessels. Uh, 
yes. near the centre of the world in those days. Definitely. So yeah. you'd, you'd have presumably Portuguese vessels again next to the, you know, these sewn vessels. Yes, yes. Um, so I suppose that that comment um, begs two questions: whether previous or <clears throat> you might expect there to be some exchange where you've suggested there wasn't any exchange, but I'd also, you'd also expect that to be a good place to look for 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 wrecks. Definitely, definitely. And I think um, in sort of looking at uh, underwater archaeology is still in its beginning stages, I would call it, um, and mm. um, in the Arabian Peninsula. There has been work that's been done, but there's still a lot more, um, and in particular. And so we're sort of, we're really hopeful that a lot more is yet mm. to be found and that the archaeological will sort of, uh, hopefully my lecture will be completely obsolete in 10 to 15 years as we have new evidence to base it off of. No, um, it's preserved forever. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, a podcast, I believe. Uh, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely in the Straits of Hormuz and mm. Musandam uh, as well as mm. a serious navigational hazard. Mm. I know there was some surveying that's been done there, uh, but there's still quite a bit more, um, mm. as well as here um, in the Gulf. Mm. Uh, I think a fair amount it can be. And Babu was actually, I mean, that was a constant question of why are we reconstructing archaeological evidence when you can obviously make a superior boat if, we just, if you just let us, um, the which is a very valid question. Yeah. Um, it's sort of... Uh, it's, it's a strange exercise, I'm the first to admit it. Uh, I mean, you have these interesting discussions, sort of you're questioning your own logic yeah. and why you're doing this. But, uh, but ultimately, um, towards the end, he sort of would understand and he would actually say, no, 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 you know, he would actually support us sometimes, which, mm -hmm. was, which was very encouraging. So one final question, do we, can we, I'm just showing up the fact that I should have done more research and been able to tell the audience myself, but can we have access to the film that you referenced in your talk? Oh, the, it, do you, yes, I believe they're actually on YouTube now. On YouTube? Um, the documentaries so we, on the National we'd look, yes. what um, would be the search word for that? Search uh, Jewel Muscat. Jewel um, Muscat. Jewel Muscat um, thank you. on YouTube, and you should be able to come up. Okay, with great, thank yes. you. Well, thank you so much for oh, your lecture. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.